Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 49th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Anna Sergunina. Anna is the owner of Main Street Financial Planning, an hourly-based financial planning firm under the Garrett Planning Network that has grown to more than $600,000 of revenue, all from simply getting paid to provide hourly financial planning advice with no income at all from insurance products or managing investment portfolios. What's fascinating about Anna's business is the way that she's figured out how to communicate the value of hourly financial planning by creating very specific financial advice packages for various types of prospective client profiles, and then using her website to both explain the value of those financial planning packages to prospects and to screen out those who aren't really likely to take the process seriously. In this episode, we talk in depth about Anna's five-meeting process for financial planning, why she charges $100 as an upfront deposit just to have an initial inquiry approach meeting with prospects, the way she focuses first on the client's spending to help them understand what they can save and what kinds of goals might even be possible, and then proceeds to an interactive financial planning session using MoneyGuide Pro, all of which leads up to a final meeting where she ultimately presents financial planning recommendations and then helps clients to implement them. We also talk about how Anna sets the level for her financial planning fees, the sources of new business that has her firm on track to add more than 100 new hourly financial planning clients this year, the way she re-engages existing clients for ongoing financial planning updates to generate a level of recurring revenue, and why and how she built extensive workflows in her Wealthbox CRM to manage the financial planning logistics with her ever-growing six-person team. And be certain to listen to the end where Anna shares her own path into the industry, how she actually bought out Main Street Financial Planning from its original founder, the way she's decided to structure her week with some days dedicated to working in the business and others solely working on the business, and why she thinks it's so crucial that even fiduciary financial planners learn how to sell. Because you can't get paid for your knowledge and expertise until you can sell someone on its value and why they should pay you. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Anna Sergunina. Welcome, Anna Sergunina, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. Great to be here. I'm excited to have you on the show today. You you come to us from, I think, a little bit of a different perspective than a lot of other advisors we've had on the podcast because you you kind of grew your business and career in the world of of hourly financial planning and the and the Garrett Planning Network, and and certainly it's a little bit of a different model than the majority of advisors by numbers that are are you know either either in a broker dealer based world where they're they're compensated through product implementation or or the the other side of the RA community that's primarily assets under management based fees but you've I, I think pretty much done the better part of your career now in hourly financial planning and and built what to my knowledge is one of the larger hourly financial planning practices in the in the country at this point with with lots of clients and lots of team members and and so I'm I'm excited to share the story of what you guys are doing there in hourly financial planning. Yes, I'm excited as well. Lots of offices too. <laughs> lots <laughs> to of offices, lots of locations. So yes. so let's let's maybe just start right there. Can you just tell us a little bit about Main Street Financial Planning about your advisory firm and and maybe paint us a little bit of a picture of what this 
advisory business looks like? Right, I sure can. So we started, Jim Ludwig founded Main Street Financial Planning in 2002. And his idea was, Garrett Planning Network was fairly new at a time, and he loved the idea of servicing you know, clients in the, in the format where financial planning was available to the majority of people. You don't have to go out and gather assets and really work on the real kind of money-related questions. And so the idea of having a practice like that really excited him. And so he started the firm in 2002 in the Maryland area, Odenton, Maryland. And then so from the very beginning, we were focused around the fee-only planning. It, it's either hourly or project-based. So we'll, we'll use an hourly rate to figure out how many hours it, it will take us to deliver you know, a plan. Either it's a full comprehensive plan or it's maybe a shorter kind of a one or two questions project. And that has been the core for how we do things up until today. We structured it a little bit differently as to what we offer now in terms of having packages and, and, and things like that, but it's still the very basis of what we do. We do not have a platform to manage assets. We never have. And I don't believe we're planning to do that. So something something like that is always gets outsourced to other advisors because that's what they do best. So we stay focused on planning. But we do offer, obviously, investment advice and, and rebalancing, rebalancing services, but not in terms of actually proactively managing accounts for our clients. And so we started in Maryland, Odenton, and that we still have an office in that town. But because of the de minimis rule, and if you upper, if have more than five clients in any state, you kind of have register, have to register. And actually, I think Texas is right more than one client you have to register. Yeah, well, first time you got one, you got to do your notice filing in Texas. <laughs> and you know yeah. what? We, I have a client in Texas, so we actually did have to do it this year. And it was funny because it was a referral from a client in Maryland, and I was like, oh my gosh, I just hope that somehow we don't have to do that. But anyway, it was not a big deal. So going back to 2002, that's when Jim started the firm. By 2006 is when I showed up around the block because I was looking for, I was just kind of how my career led me to just learning about financial planning. I found NAPFA Network and then I found Garrett and then I just kind of started looking around in my area where I was living, who was all involved in these networks and where the firms that were practicing this, you know, this fee only kind of planning. Cause I really loved the idea. I, I did not want to be a salesperson as I'm, I'm sure a lot of advisors dread that. And, but that's one of the actually, I think mistakes I've made. I should have gone into a sales job, but <laughs> live and learn. You should have. Well, all right. I, I got to pause there. So, so <laughs> why, why would you, why would you say that? Right. I think particularly in, in for a lot of the advice world, We've almost gone to the, like the other end of the extreme. Sales is a bad word. Right? Like I, salespeople sell things. I'm here to give advice and get paid for my knowledge and wisdom. Yes, so I believe that I, I really did because I wanted to do financial planning. Right? I didn't realize that the the sale piece. Right? If, as much as this word, actually, I'm kind of a 360 degrees about this concept today. But then I thought, well, I don't want to be, because the idea of, of, of selling to me was my last year in college, I had internship at Smith Barney, right? And I saw the dynamic and what was like how you had to make phone calls, right? Called calls. I did not want to do that. I was not interested in investments per se. I was not interested in making called calls. I just wanted to 
like really work with people, but I didn't connect the dots in terms of how I was going to get to them. Right. I, I knew I didn't want to do like the cold calling piece. And so I was like, well, I'm going to do financial planning. I'm going to be fee only. I'm not selling you products. So all of that sounded really nice and like perfect business model, perfect company to work for. And that's kind of how I like, all right, I'm not going to do that. But once, once I got to a point in my career where I started seeing clients, right, I started to get into the place where I had to get clients in front of not just clients, but, you know, centers of influence and people who can refer business, all of that kind of shifted to me. And it's like, okay, I now have to be more in the sales role. And there was more realization of that. I had to sell myself, not a product, right? Which is in this essence is the financial plan we do, but it's that relationship. And so I actually, you know, like I said, 360 degrees. And I, I, I love the idea of, of being in front of people these days. And I do a lot of it on my day-to-day basis. It's definitely one of the gaps that I'm seeing come up more and more in, in our advisor space, this this whole phenomenon that even if you've you've taken a path to be in the Call it like the advice business and not the 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 product sales business that you still ultimately have to sell. You're just you said it like you, you have to sell yourself. You have to sell the value of your advice and why someone should pay you for all this awesome advice that you say you have, but you still got to convince someone to part with their hard earned dollars to pay you for that advice. And and I think even in some ways it's it's maybe more challenging to to sell our advice because at least if I sell a product like I can point to the product there's various features and benefits people with lots of resources have made pretty marketing materials that show exactly what this product is and how it works and the great things about it hopefully all of which are true and accurate but like they're they're packaged up for me I just have to learn the sales pitch for the thing that someone can teach me and when you're selling your advice and you're selling yourself, you kind of have to figure it out more for yourself of how do you convey the value of what you do when it's almost literally all in your head. Just like, I got knowledge up here in my brain. I'm going to lay some knowledge on you. You should pay me for that. And figuring out how to make that a sale is challenging, even though the reality is if, if you, you know, it doesn't matter how much you know, if you can't convince anyone to pay you to, to give that knowledge to them. Right. And, you know, I think for me, all of that started to come together as I became more confident in my, right, in my knowledge, in my experience. And then once, once that kind of crossed over, then I was more in front, you know, I wanted to be more in front of people because I, I, you know, I knew that I could deliver service. It was just a matter of how can I explain to you what I do as a financial planner and why you should work with me. So it, it was, it was a bit of a transition for sure. And I'm, and, and I know that others are going through that as well. And sometimes you don't even come to that point. Like there are a lot of advisors who don't want to do sales. They just really want to be the, doing the advising piece, which is great, right? Because we, when we, when we go and study for the CFP certifications, there's no sales classes. They're not teaching us how to do that. And that's, yeah, I wish they would. I actually really do. You wish they would teach sales and business development in, in financial planning yes. classes. Yes, programs, yeah. I would. Right. 
right? Because when you come when you come out of with the CFP certification, whether you work for for a company or you start your own business, that is going to happen. You one way or the other, you're going to have to face it. Whether it's you know fifty percent of your time spent on that or you know twenty five because you're doing the the servicing piece. So, so how did how did you end up filling the void? Was it just literally like school of hard knocks? You try to convince people enough times with perseverance that eventually you figure out some things that work and and stuck with them and now that's that's the routine of what you do pretty much i think it was just evolving so when i started with with jim in 2006 i didn't quite have my cfp yet i was working on completing the the classes and i needed industry experience so i started really at the bottom i said i'll take any job you want me to do and I'll just be an admin person, a power planner. You know, I'll just grow myself into that position where I will be comfortable and and see, you know, and facing clients. Once I sort of crossed over that, and then you know, something else happened that I actually relocated across the country that put me in the position where I had, you know, I had no clients. I knew nobody, so I needed to force myself to go out and 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 convince you know clients, convince. S- centers of influence that what we had to offer was something unique and, and and that's you know why they needed to work with us. So it was circumstances, but it was I think also the progression of my career as I grew from admin person to paraplanner to being being an advisor and then more of you know becoming a lead advisor and where I had to generate business into a business owner where it's like, yes, you've got to do sales because the business will not run. Yes. <laughs> it's not gonna work. But it is a striking difference to me, though, that if you go back a little bit further in the industry, like you get anybody who's been in for certainly 20 plus years, either you were a salesperson that had the ability naturally or learned it almost immediately, or you didn't survive. Like there was, there were, there were no other jobs besides financial advisor that got paid to sell and implement products. And so, you were a salesperson or bus. And then later, if you were a good salesperson, the firm would allow you to go back to school and get your CFP marks and, and, and learn more. And now we come at it from the exact opposite direction, which is more and more advisors come in and they want to, they want to just do the advising and do the planning work and work in a planning firm. And they do that for a period of time and you can get paid reasonably for that. And that's great. But then if you want to move up in your career ladder, at some point, you have to take responsibility for clients. Then you have to be able to get new clients. Then maybe even you have to be able to manage a business and run advisory teams if you want to continue to grow your upward trajectory. And there's all these sales and business development skills that become necessary for you to move up. But the difference is in the past, you needed them in year one or you didn't make it past year one. Now they don't really even start showing up as as real needs until you're five years or seven years plus into the business and you move through those administrative, paraplanner, associate planner kinds of support roles and you start moving to a lead position where like suddenly you go, wow, I, I came into this to do the planning and not sales. And then you have this realization like, oh, I'm not going to move up from here unless I actually learn sales and business development. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's why I think I should have started at the other way, at the other entrance, and probably would have been. I think what that would have done for me is just would have 
sped things up a little bit more in terms of, you know, getting clients faster, becoming more confident in, you know, in terms of facing, I knew, I knew how to do financial planning. I knew my, you know, I was a certified financial planner, but that was something I was lacking. I, I, I did take sales training separately because I wanted to learn. I still do, you know, up until today, it's, it's really never over. It's just still continuing education, just like everything else we have to do to, to maintain our designation. So going back to the practice for a moment, you're, you're, you said you're, you're all fee-only planning. It's either hourly or project-based, where I guess project-based is simply we estimate the number of hours, but we give you a hard quote. So it's, it's, a, it's a closed project as opposed to just an open-ended hourly fee. No one knows what they're going to pay in total. So you've got this hourly or project-based structure. It started with Jim Ludwig in 2002. You added into the firm in, in 2006. And you've continued straight through to today, still only doing the hourly and project-based financial planning work. That's correct. So what what changed a little bit in the last, since 2014, is that, so the, we've, when we started and quoting the, the, the fees for the projects, it was, okay, so client comes in, you know, we have a discussion with them, kind of get a sense of how much time we need to spend answering their questions, and then we would propose them a quote, right? And that that's what you were just describing. That's somewhat uncertain, right? And everybody was a bit leery saying, well, how much is this going to cost me? Is this going to be on the higher end of your fees? And we would always tell them what the, what the fee range was because you want to set some kind of expectations, right? So that they're not totally, totally shocked when they come in here. So we've had that from from day one, you give them a range, right? And then we've decided that instead of doing that, why don't we look at the types of clients we were working with, figure out how much time you know we were spending on servicing those clients, like what did it actually take in terms of hours to deliver the service? And then we took the averages and created, we have three different packages right now that we offer. They're the same service. It's just, it's it's now we have a product, right? So we, we kind of shifted it a little bit. When they come to find us online and they go to our website, they get to see what the, the product is, the full comprehensive plan, right? And so they actually see the price first. So when they show up here in our offices, it's not about how many hours we're going to quote them, right? It's about what we're going to do for them, how we're going to do for them, and it really getting to know them much, much better. So that that actually eliminated a lot of questions that people had initially in their mind. Like, well, is this going to be this hourly thing? How, how many hours is the clock ticking? all the time. So it really kind of shifted the approach to how the prospects viewed our business model. But sometimes these standard packages that we have may be not enough to address their questions. So we could always add more hours based on our hourly rate. So I, I, I'm struck by this. I feel like I mean, when I look at the advisor landscape overall, putting fees on an advisor's website is to say the least, not a common thing to do. I, I still don't see a lot of advisory firms that put the details of their fee structure on their website, particularly when they're, they're kind of hard dollar fees like what you do. I mean, at least AUM fee schedules are sometimes up on websites. Although anecdotally, I find when I look around advisor websites, like it is less than half that even have some kind of fee schedule up on their website and, and even fewer that have kind of detailed price quotes the way that the way that you do. And and for most advisors, I know it basically comes down to 
I'm afraid that they're going to look at the fees and move on and I'll never have a chance to you know, explain our value. Like I'm afraid they're just going to misunderstand my fees and, and think they're too high and move on. So does that not worry you or is that not a concern that you know putting these things on your website of like it'll cost a thousand or two thousand dollars or whatever the number is to engage us in financial planning will just give people sticker shock and make them not call no it does not worry me at all it's it's actually i was just thinking about a quote i think it's by warren buffett but the price is what you pay and the value is what you get so we and this is and this comes from the sales training that i've done over the years is just realizing is that People will pay you any kind of price as long as they can see the value in what you're delivering. So our job is to show them that value through through just very simple things like our website, right? Through the conversation we're going to have with them when they contact us initially, in the first meeting when they show up in the office or online. So all of that is part of kind of, okay, yes, they see the price. And if they're coming to our, to our website or looking for the cheapest financial planner, then we tell them right away, we're not your cheapest financial planner. You're not going to get the cheap financial plan here. And what does that even mean? Why? So it's a, there's a little bit of education component there, but never was worried about somebody being sticker shocked by, by our fees and not having to do business with us. And that's probably a prospect that you don't want to do business with because they're going to be they're going to be you know watching the fees and not really seeing seeing the service, seeing the value that you're going to provide to them as an advisor. Right, I guess it's it's an interesting way to look at it from the other end. The 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 virtue of having your fees on your website is all of your fee sensitive clients screen themselves out, and you don't even have to waste the time of a phone call with them. Pretty much, and it, one other interesting thing that we do, still do today, we've done it for years, is that we do not meet with anybody in person or online for initial meeting unless they pay a hundred dollars deposit. And then they complete a questionnaire. And I know that there's a lot of conversations about, you know, clients or prospects. So not only do they have to give you like a data gathering kind of form up front, they actually have to pay you a $100 fee, like just to do the initial consultation. You don't do the like, I'll talk to you, I'll do an initial consultation for free to figure out if we're a good fit and then move on. Like they have to pay a hundred bucks even for that meeting. They have to pay a hundred dollars deposit when we meet with them, when they've finally completed a questionnaire and we meet with them in person. Initially, what we do is we have phone calls. So we would, we would take a 15 minute phone call and have a discussion with them and explain to them the process, explain to them what we're going to do just in the, you know, in the shorter condensed version. And then if they're, if they're feeling that they're ready to dive deeper, then those are the steps. Yes. And that does also eliminate some people who say, well, I don't want to pay a hundred dollars. No problem. No, then we cannot have a meeting with you. So, so if they pay the hundred dollars and then they actually move on and work with you, I guess the, like, it's literally just a deposit against their, their fee. So if they, if they pay the hundred dollars to do an initial consultation with you and then decide they don't want to work with you, like, do you then refund the deposit or is that like, no, no, that's a non-refundable deposit just to get the initial call with us? Correct. It's an, it's a non-refundable deposit if they decide not to work with it. And they are know about that right up front. It's it's also on our website. Interesting. Interesting. Like I feel like that's a big leap away from where most advisors are to to literally say, like, I won't even do an initial consultation with you unless unless you pay a hundred dollars for that first meeting. You can look at it that way. And and since I'm 
in charge of doing all of the prospect calls. So even just an initial 15 minute conversation or however long it takes, there's, I mean, you're still, you know, you just still end up maybe giving a little bit of advice to them or, you know, that's, so it's, it's not like you completely saying, okay, well, if you don't pay a hundred dollars, you know, no deal. Not really. It's I, a lot of times I explain it to prospects. It's like, think about this. When you go to the doctor's office, right, you have to pay some kind of copay. That's how you should think about it. And frankly, probably if you if you if we think about it, maybe one in ten prospects would ever even question that and say, "Oh, yeah, I'm I'm going to go talk to advisors who don't charge anything, and then I'll call you back." Oh, that's no problem. You can do that later. So it's not a big deal. And we've done it for for years. It helps to eliminate people who are not serious. And sometimes maybe that you know initially. Those who don't go through after the initial meeting, maybe perhaps there was not a match, you know, for whatever reason, but at least, you know, they've got to see our process. And then they, you know, I feel like we've done all we can at that point to show them the value. I'm circling back to that point because that's what we want to do. And so that so that they can make a smart decision whether they want to work with us in our process. So so the next natural question this leads to me is is how on earth are you finding people that show up on your website and are, are paying, are willing to pay a hundred dollars for the privilege of finding <laughs> out if you might be a good fit for them? Since that's, we're not even at the engagement point yet. We're just at the like, let's figure out if this is a match. So, like, what is the what is the marketing process for getting people to show up and being willing to pay a hundred dollar upfront meeting fee? So marketing, our marketing process is fairly simple. We get a lot of our referrals through networks like NAPFA, Garrett Planning Network, XY, and then the referrals from, from other centers of influence, clients themselves. So it's, it's sort of a natural, we don't, we don't pay for advertisement anywhere. There's, there's none of that. It's, it's really organic growth. I think the, the, prospects who are finding us, they have a, you know, they obviously have specific needs and, and questions and problems they want help with. And so when they come to us and they, or somebody sends them our way, you know, they see what we have to offer. So it's just a matter of taking them through the process because most people don't understand what, what we do, right? They just get to us. They know they need to talk to a financial planner. They need, they know they need to talk to somebody who's fee only and that's it. And then they get to you and it's like, okay, well, I've got all of this going on. So you have to take them through a process and explain to them, here's how we do it. Here's how we're going to address your questions. This is how it works. So it's, it's kind of like step-by-step conversion and conversation with them so that when you come to a point where you say, well, the next step is for us to, to do this, right? To schedule a meeting and this is how it works. It's not a question in their mind because now you've painted a picture, right? And so, you know, in terms of marketing, I mean, we have a blog, just like any other financial planner website. We do our shows so they can, you know, they can look around, they can Google our name, they can see that we're active, they see that there's presence. So I, I think that also leads them to want to have a discussion and want to have a conversation with us. But that's that's really it in terms of marketing. And I think also, because we do hear from a lot of prospects about, you know, the fact that we're pretty clear about what our process is, what our fees are, right? Because they can see that on a website. So those who see that the fees aren't fitting their budget, they're going to select themselves out. 
So we don't even have to talk to them. So that also helps kind of lead them through the process in our pipeline. So so referrals that come in from the association and network groups, NAPFA, Gear Applying Network, XY Applying Network, and then referrals from COI. So who are who are centers of influence referrers for a firm like yours? Willie, where, where do those referrals typically come from? Is that the like the I'll call traditional attorneys and accountants that a lot of advisors go to, or or are your COIs a little bit different? Combination. So yes, the the CPAs, accountants, estate planning attorneys. But it's interesting with us is that other advisors are also a big part of that referral bucket because of our business model being so unique in terms of us not managing assets and doing this project work. We frequently get clients from advisors that, for example, may have a minimum asset that they want to manage and this client does not fit into that category. And they'll say, well, go talk to Jim and Anna at Main Street because they can help you with, you know, with your questions as you don't have half a million dollars for me to manage that. So it's been, it's been big, big, big source of referrals for us because of that. So can you like give any census the breakdown? If I look at all the clients that you got over the past year, like what, what portion come from network referrals? What portion comes from other advisors? What portion comes from other COIs? Like I'm just imagining if you're a an advisor that wants to do more of this business model, what what should I, what should I expect drives the bulk of my new client opportunities and growth if I'm trying to get started? All right. So referrals are about thirty percent. Okay. Of of all the all the leads that we get, that's referrals from other advisors or or referrals from clients themselves who who. It's a combination. Okay. I don't have it broken down more than that. Okay. But clients, other the centers of influence, I'll call those referrals. Then you have, then we have the the associations. So that's about twenty, another thirty percent of the business. And then the rest is we as we classify it is through our website. Okay. I'm sure we could probably expand a little bit more, but I don't have the data at the moment. Because sometimes they find us on the association sites, right? And then they come to, to our website and that's how we know. Because it's also, it's not that we can't track them. Sometimes they don't specifically tell us where they came from. Oh, I just found you on a website. But we, we may, even in our initial intake form, we, we specifically ask them, how did you find us? Like they have to enter that field. Otherwise, they won't be able to complete the form. So, but that's, uh, that's the breakdown. Interesting. And and so, I mean, to have almost a third of your business just coming straight through the website, and granted, a few are probably, they found you on NAPFA and click through and then engage you through, through yes. the website from NAPFA, but I can't imagine it's all of it. So, like, where is, I mean, do you have any sense as to how they, how the rest find you? Or is, is this like social media efforts and stuff that you're doing like that? Or just someone's typing, I don't know hourly financial planner into Google and you're actually coming up as the results that they're getting? Yeah, I, I can't speak to that, but I think it's more of if they type an hourly financial planner or financial planner, it probably brings them to the NAPFA, Garrett or XY websites. And from there, they kind of navigate into, this kind of speaks, Michael, to why we have the locations or why we have six offices across the country because people are still 
look for somebody in their backyard, okay? They want somebody who's close by that they can drive to. And so the associations, at least NAPFA, allows for local planner search, okay? And so that helps kind of narrow down, okay, so who is in my backyard, right? I'm going to go talk to these three or four local firms, so that's, I see a lot of that still being true today, right? That's how we sort of started initially, right? When Jim launched the company. But now this whole as- aspect of online work, it's funny how they still find you locally. They, they know you're here in their, in their town, but they would be very willing to do work online with you. It's like this c- combination. Sometimes just, I can't put it together in my head. Right. <laughs> so interesting. And, and so. What does this add up to for you guys? Like how many how many new clients do you typically take in a year? And I guess just overall now, like how how many clients are part of the advisory firm? Right. So so this year we're on track to actually last year, 2016, we had a hundred new clients, ninety-seven new clients, meaning those who who came initially to us and for those who we did initial plan. Nine, how many? 98. 98 new clients. That is a lot of new clients. It is a lot of new clients. 98 new clients, of which I guess from those numbers, like about a third of them were NAPFA, Garrett, XY Planning Network website referrals. About a third were Center of Influence advisor referrals. Then about a third came yes. through the website. Yes, our, 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 and we've been tracking our data for, you know, a few years now, specifically the, the percentages breakdown is pretty steady. Okay. So yes, correct. Okay. This year we're actually on track to to get to 120 clients. So quite a bit quite a bit more than last year. And this is new clients, ones that come for the first time, never done financial planning before, and then they go through our initial one year worth of services. And so what's the range of scope for them? So so some might just be coming to buy an hour or two of your time, and that's the whole engagement. Others may be doing a full comprehensive financial plan and a more in-depth project. Like, how do you how do you break down the combination of the two? It's probably ninety percent of the full comprehensive plan work, and the rest are either smaller projects, like we have a what we call a quick start session. It's just a like a ninety minute kind of a discussion conversation or some of it might be hourly. So it's mostly comprehensive planning work. It's those packages. I was describing that when they come in, they, they, they get a full service for one year. And, and where do you typically price those full packages? I mean, I know there's, I'm sure there's some range just depending on the scope, but like, where does that typically break it down? It starts, it starts at 3000 and all the way to $4,200. Okay. So three thousand to forty two hundred, if they're going to do a full a full pro- project plan, and then if they do hourly, like you just quote them a straight hourly rate. Correct, right? And and the 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 fee range is really it's not it's not even the fee range because each specific package has a fee. It just depends on where they are in their life phase. Like for example, a single person coming in just kind of starting out would be more on the three thousand dollar package. Our retirees or pre-retirees would be more on our $4,200 package. And then like our family plans are somewhere in the middle, which are like $3,600. So it just, just depends on where they are, not so much on a range. They don't get a range. That's when they come into our website, they see the specific numbers. Okay. And that's part of your focus is is not giving them a range, just saying, here's the number. 
Correct. Right. And we and we explain to them in the meetings that, okay, well, and that's why we have initial meeting is to understand, do they kind of fit our box, right? Do they fit our package? And they like that too, right? Because then they kind of identify themselves, oh, right, we are, we're just got, got married and we're about to have, you know, a child. We need to do all these things. And they see this package. Oh, this is for me, right? It's like, it feels, I mean, think about your own buying patterns, right? Buying behavior. You want to, when you look for a product or something, you want to see how you fit in. So it really does help with, in terms of them understanding like, okay, where do they stand? And, you know, where where would be the best choice for them? And so, I mean, I'm just kind of doing the, like the rough math here. So, you know, three to $4,000 a client, a hundred plus new clients, granted, maybe a few are, are, our hourly work as well that are that are a little bit lower, but like this is hundreds of thousands of dollars of new client financial planning fees every year. That's correct. It's a big number. And and then what about after the first year? Right. It's like you you at almost a hundred clients a year, you've got a huge planning revenue just for the clients this year. Then you've got the hundred year, the ninety eight you did last year. And you know the the ninety or hundred the prior year and the prior year and so forth. So, do you do ongoing planning work for the existing clients as well, or is it pretty much every every new year is a is a fresh start for finding the the next hundred clients that are that are going to pay planning fees? Right. So it's both. It's there's definitely every new year where we start from scratch of finding the new clients, or I would say more or less they find us. And then those who had done the work with us before have options into converting for second year clients and then so forth in terms of doing more planning and kind of ongoing, we call it annual review programs. So there are options for them to work with us past just one year. And how do you price that for them? I guess, how do you price that and how do you offer it to them? Like. They get to the end of the planning process. Hey, if you want to come back or just do you call them the next year and say, hey, we can do a renewal of your plan. Here's the cost. Do you want to come in? Like, How, how does that get positioned right. and done? So we're changing it a little bit going forward in 2018, but traditionally it's been at the year one of when their engagement is ending, we're having a checkup session with them. And that's when we start a conversation about, okay, here's what we've done so far for the year. This is how it has been. Here's what we can offer for going forward. And so it's usually a one-year agreement that they renew with us. So we'll have to do that continually every year, right? And the 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 prices or the fee range is, and it's it's a range because it's two different services. So if they want to meet with us twice a year versus maybe quarterly, some clients need that kind of help. So it's $1,800 for our annual review or a twice a year kind of engagement. And it's not just meetings twice a year. There's a lot more, but to differentiate the two. And then our more involved, what we call it, continued service, that's $3,200 okay. a year. And like, can you talk a little bit more about what the difference is? I mean, I get like annual review. We'll meet with you once or twice a year. Continuous service certainly implies some, something more there. But like, what what is the difference between the two that you explain to someone of like, where's my extra $1,400 going to go? Is it just the difference between quarterly meetings and once or twice a year? Or is there other stuff to it? There's right. There's there's that. So there's there's just meeting with them more often. They have you know more of a direct access to like they can call they can call my cell phone if I'm their advisor. I can 
my cell phone pretty much anytime if there's questions. For the the more involved service, we would take a look at their portfolio more often. So if it's, you know, maybe three times a year versus doing it twice a year for our annual review clients. Part of the continuous service, we would also offer them if they had family members that needed some assistance, we would offer, you know, some of that. Obviously not a full comprehensive plan, but you know, something something to that extent. And that's about it. So the rest is just a just a normal kind of updating the plan, reviewing the goals, looking at their spending. So all of that is covered in both plans. It's just the one that's more more meetings and just more access to to the advisor. Kind of be available, like it's almost like on call. So you have to be have to be available pretty much all the time. And it's it's really not that bad in terms of client. I don't have my phone going off the hook. It's really not that. But in terms of when the client, you know, when there is an issue and the client wants to get a hold of you, then yeah. So do you have a sense as to how many of your, you know, upfront annual clients that you get started with each year move into a an ongoing renewal plan basis? Is it like half of them or a quarter of them or or how many actually move from that upfront to an ongoing relationship? It's it's about 25%, but it's hard to track this data because one year, like, because you're thinking about it this, this way, probably, okay, well, so we got 100 clients, 25 of them will sign up for an annual review program next year. And that's very true, they will, but it doesn't always mean that they will sign up for it to year two or year three. So it's it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's all, in terms of we know how many convert, but then sometimes you may lose them. Sometimes what happens is that after year one, they say, okay, we're good for now. We're going to come see you maybe in year three. And so we have a lot of those two. Okay. So they like the every other year approach for, for connecting with you. Exactly. Exactly. But we do have a base of about 150 clients that are every year in the combination of these services, either a continuous service or annual review, where they do come in, they're consistent, and they, you know, they the, 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 the clients may change again, they may just do it for some time, and then they switch, or they don't come back that year. But it's about consistent, or, you know, consistent recurring clients is about 150 of them. So, so I'm just trying to peg some some numbers here that, you know, like a hundred plus new clients at fees that start at three thousand dollars is like three hundred plus thousand dollars of revenue. You're you've got a hundred and fifty or more ongoing clients with review fees from eighteen hundred to thirty two hundred, which is another three hundred plus thousand of revenue. So like between all of these, is that accurate that you're doing six or seven hundred thousand dollars of financial planning fees through the year? Is that what it adds up to? That is about right. Oh, it's a monstrous number for planning fees, right? I feel like in a, in a world where there's still a lot of discussion of, yeah, but you can't really make that much money as an hourly planner. Like that's a, it's a big number when there's six or $700,000 of, like I was going to say hourly fees, but I guess in, in practice, like it's, it's time-based fees but you're not actually often doing, hey, it's just X hundred dollars an hour and we'll bill you for our time. You found it's mostly project scope just so people know what they're paying and getting into. Exactly. Exactly. And do you ever worry from the other end that like you you quote a three thousand dollar planning fee and then you get into the planning work and it turns out to take way more time than you'd expected because all this stuff comes up after you've gotten into it with the client and and you're now pigeonholed into a three thousand dollar fee. Like does is that just 
Does that not happen to you? Is that like an overblown concern or it happens and you just absorb it or, or how do you handle those situations? It does happen. Not as, not as often, I guess, because we've been doing it for a while in terms of estimating the fees, right? When the client sits in front of you and that's kind of what we've done for the, for the first 12 years of the business, right? We, we, we would sit with them, we would talk to them and then we say, okay, well, it takes us 10 hours to do your plan, right? So you kind of, as, as, as an advisor, you start getting a sense of, you know, if, if they talk slow, that perhaps they're going to take longer if, if there's complexity to their plan. And, but I think Michael also what helps is we have a, a very, rigid process that we go through in terms of how we deliver the plan. So in my mind, when I'm thinking about that, if it if they don't fit quite a bit into that process, then I start to think, okay, well, maybe somewhere I need to factor in more time. So sometimes, yes, yeah, sometimes you can underestimate and, and not realize that they're going to throw something at you in the course of the engagement. We tell them up front that this is, you know, in case there's something does come up, then we're going to discuss with them beforehand, before we do the work, that if there's more time needed, then we're going to bill them for that. But it's not that I will do the work and then turn around and give them an invoice for more than what we discussed. So it's very rare. Sometimes if if like you spend half an hour more, and, and it's not that we're even tracking our time that much. If they get into a comprehensive plan, it's just going through the meetings, going through the process. But sometimes it's it's more and sometimes it's like, wow, okay, this was a pretty simple plan. But because we had an agreement and not that we did not deliver the value, don't feel bad about it. So, yeah, you kind of just work around it. Can you take us through then a little bit more of what your planning process actually looks like? Like for my $3,000 to $4,200 of of planning fees for a project, like what do I – what do I get? What does that process entail? What what happens to earn your way through a $3,000 planning fee? Sure, I can. If you have a computer handy, you can go to our website and I can actually walk you through. We have a diagram that explains. Sure, we'll include a link to it in the in the show notes directly off the, the Main Street Financial Planning website. Yes. It's MainStreetPlanning.com when you get to the site. And right at the top, there's navigation bar and you click on individuals. Okay. And then there's individual services. And then that takes you to the very top of the page. And you see it says step-by-step. So this is the process that everybody goes through starting from initial phone call when we chat with them for a few minutes. And then they start working a questionnaire and submitting their deposit. Then we have the initial meeting where we get a sense of exactly what we're going to do with them and for them. In that meeting, usually about an hour, we discuss, go through the questionnaire, just understand where they're coming from, what kind of questions they have, or what kind of questions they need to have because they haven't thought about it. So it's a bit of a discovery process. We figure out what kind of documents we're going to collect from them, and then we confirm the fee. That's when the, the prospect knows what is it that they're going to get into. So. So you have your just initial inquiry, which is the like 15 minutes, let's check in, phone call, just make sure we're a reasonable fit. They pay $100 for that. If they're interested beyond that point, then you'll do a full one-hour initial meeting, where, which is more of our traditional data gathering discovery process meeting. You'll finalize a fee quote to them at that point. 
and start collecting information? Like, are they expected to bring the classic data gathering forms to that meeting? You'll tell them like, Hey, when you come in for the initial meeting, bring, you know, your statements and copies of your documents and so forth. No, some clients want to bring things and that's fine. What we ask them to do for the initial meeting is just fill out the questionnaire and that's pretty pretty deep enough. So initially they're going to have to pull their data. So we just tell them, hey, have it handy because we what we want them to do is not to bring it to the, to the meeting, but have it handy so that they can scan it and then upload it to us. So we don't, you know, don't have to do that. But no, after we've agreed to work together, then we can figure out exactly what documents we need, right? Because initially you don't really, when they flood the questionnaire, sometimes there could be confusion. Sometimes they don't specifically state what's on there. So after going through it, like now you have a sense, okay, oh, you have a 401k, it's not an IRA, or you know how that could be sometimes not properly recorded. So we can't quite request the documents at that point. And we don't want to because they're not a client yet. So yeah, so after the initial meeting, what they walk out of the initial meeting is a good understanding, which if you scroll down on the page, what they actually going to get one of these packages. Okay, so you know, starting and growing a family package, single no children package, approaching retirement package, okay, with all the details of the stuff that's covered, right? So I'm starting a family Yep, debt strategies, rent versus buy, insurance coverage, tax savings ideas, right? Like just all the stuff that's relevant for someone in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. So when when we're explaining to them how how and what we do, this is exactly the same process. You walk them through and they and they get it. So and they make a decision sometimes right on the spot that this is what they want to do, and then we just kind of start the process. But they have a list of documents we're gonna need, so they can now go home and start putting it all together. We sign an agreement and then they give us a deposit. So they give us a deposit of, they've given us already $100, then they give us 11 more $100. So that's $1,200 altogether. And that kind of starts the whole engagement. Okay. They start working on collecting the documents. And then we set a meeting for, for initial, the, the very first, what we call a goals meeting. Okay. And so what happens? what happens at the goals meeting? So what happens, so once they submitted all their documents to us, then the very first thing we do is what we call a spending plan. So we prepare a spending plan for them. So we look at, we have, over the years, we've kind of customized and designed our own. It's just a, it's a basic Excel spreadsheet, but it has, it has all, so they've given us our spending data, it has all of their expenses, and we look at it on a yearly basis. So, and then we try to figure out, okay, because in an initial discussion or first initial meeting, we've asked them about some of the questions, like, you know, what are some of your goals? And our questionnaire actually has some of those boxes that they can check off. I want to retire or I want to buy a house or, you know, those kinds of things. So you kind of have an idea what they, what they're thinking, right? What we do in the, in the spending plan is we try to lay it out a little bit for them in terms of just the expenses, expenses and income. So expenses are on the top. And then income at the bottom. So they can actually just see it from the cash flow standpoint because so many people don't even see it that way. And then much less we can actually determine whether they can start saving for those goals if we don't see if there's any discretionary dollars left. So we prepare the spending plan. It's, it's just a draft document because we're going to use it throughout the engagement to, to clean it up more, to, to make it workable for them. So the first column is where they actually, where they are today. Like it would be for one full year. Then we try to envision, and this is usually what an advisor does because the advisor is the one who has 
who's had the meeting with them because we have two power planners who help us do the the document, you know, the, the, the back end work, the document collection and and help prepare some of these spending plans as well. But the advisor is the one who kind of envisions, okay, so if they're if this is our example of the family starting out, right? Or so maybe their goal is to have to have children in two years. So that would be the next column. We don't we're not gonna do a hundred columns, but we will may do three or four, right? Basically, the idea is what is the next significant phase in your life where expenses are different from your income? And so if we're thinking about our family starting out, your life does change yep. when you start having kids, right? <laughs> so, so, yes. And then, you know, maybe the next one, and, and for, for most people, they want to focus in the next maybe five years, right? So then, so that would probably cover the next sort of five-year period. And then we can think about okay, what's what is after that? Would that be maybe sending kids to private school or one of one of the clients changing careers or jobs? Again, just the very basic because that leads us into having them think about their goals. Okay, because let's say like you're not even at the point yet of doing you know accumulation projections. Are you saving enough towards these goals and what you're moving towards? Like you're just trying to boil down spending. And I guess essentially, like, and what's possible given your cash flow in the first place. Correct, right. Because out of that discussion and just having them envision, we'll do that next, right? We'll we'll start doing the projection. This is where the interactive session comes in. But we've got to get them thinking in, in those terms. We've got to start them envisioning what their goals are. Because for, for some, they they don't even see it. They don't like envision it in terms of, okay, well, we want to buy a house, but how is this possible? Can we afford it? And they can actually start seeing it on that spending plan and start, you know, kind of making it real because for most it's not. And so that's a lot of times this goals meeting is, could be two sessions, right? But I mean, this is sort of a simplified version, but sometimes you get into it and there, if, if there's debt challenges, right? If we need to work on that, like those things we have to address first before we get into projections and, 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 you know, and running scenarios in our financial planning software, like we got to get the basics first and we got to, sometimes the clients have issues with spending. And so how can you work on these higher, you know, more complex issues when the basics aren't covered? Like they're not going to, they're just not going to move past it. And so it's really, it's been really, really handy tool over the years to just kind of get the, the conversation started. We also do bills prepare financial statement. That's just because we need to understand, you know, where they are, wh- where all the accounts are, because sometimes things get so, lost. So how long does this, is this goals meeting typically a full like two hour meeting? I mean, it sounds sort of meaty. Hour and a half. No, hour and a half. So if it goes beyond hour and a half, then we schedule the next okay. follow-up session. Most of the times it's not because once we once we collected their, their data, we prepared these initial documents, we send it off to them. So they when they come in for a goals meeting, they've reviewed it and they're given sometimes they give us feedback before so the meeting. If there's, right? So if there's concerns, so they're prepared. Like you never get into one of these meetings and then you look and go, Oh crap, there's a one of these numbers is wrong and it, it kind of throws the whole meeting off because you would have sent it to them beforehand so they could have told you, hey, this number out of whack and, and this other thing's got to get changed. True, true. And we, a lot of times we do, particularly if we're doing this meeting online, we could just change those numbers right on the screen. So it's like, it's even better than in person because, and we, it's like the numbers don't, unless they're really significantly different and that's why we send it to them ahead of time because we have their data, right? We have their spending, we have all of their statements. So it's, I mean, there could be, could be a surprise, but more or less it's not. And so- and so then what's the so the next meeting is what you've labeled the 
interact. So we had initial inquiry, 50 minutes, get to know each other. Initial meeting where we really scope out the nature of the plan. The goals meeting where you're reviewing a spending plan based on the information they gave you so you can start figuring out what sorts of goals are we working towards. Then meeting number four, you've labeled interactive sessions. So so what happens here? Right. So in, in that goals meeting also, besides the spending plan review and analysis, we've also identified their goals. So specifically, you know, when do you want to retire? I'll use an example of retirement because that's a very first one we, we kind of pinpoint for them. Now that we know what their lifestyle looks like, right? We can we can use, for example, if it's if they need fifty thousand to live on, right? Then we can set a goal for having a fifty thousand dollar lifestyle for them as a retirement goal. Or if, or if they're buying a house and we figured that they can afford a fifty thousand dollar down payment, then that becomes a goal because Money Guide Pro, and that's the software we use, is goal goals oriented right planning software. So we've got to have those specific goals laid out so that between the goals meeting and an interactive session we can actually produce the plan for them because in, in the interactive session we actually already showing them what the scenarios look like. So they come because they've been through these meetings they're pretty antsy by that point to say well w- will this work? Will this work and and at that point a lot of people are asking okay well, what about my investments? Well hold on we're not going to address your investments just yet. We're going to work on work on the plan first. But that's it pretty much in the interactive session we go through we show them what variables go into the planning software, you know, because we need to confirm because they haven't seen it yet, right? They just thought about it. They talked about it. Now they need to see it. And then once they see it, we show them the results. This is when we can confirm that they need to save more or they need to spend less or they need to retire later, whatever the outcomes are, right? That's when we have. So by that session, we pretty much are laid out the plan for them. So then when the final, we call it a final presentation, but it's final presentation in this initial engagement. By then, we now can talk about their portfolio, right? So how now the investments that you've got are going to help you achieve these goals that you laid out for yourself, right? We know you have to save more, for example, if that's the the case for most people it is then you know now we need to figure out where are you going to save so we're going to give them obviously the the analysis of what where the portfolio currently is at and then if we need to tweak it if it's off balance right so we're going to give them precise recommendations of what to change but then also then now we can connect the dots between where are they saving and where everything is at so that's where the final presentation is where we put all of this together now that's not the only piece that we discuss in that meeting it's also like if we're looking at all of their insurance programs so you know going through life insurance disability property and casualty so pretty much a complete summary of recommendations that they get from us so at that meeting they actually have a full and it's pretty it's a tangible plan because we give them depending if they're you know if they work with us online or if they come in person we we can give them a binder that has reports that we've used so they actually have something they can hold on to or all of it is available electronically for them they also have an actual plan, right? Because when you hand somebody a binder that has lots of reports, they get lost. They get overwhelmed in the first meeting. But we have we create an action plan for them. So then, then the next phase is when we start implementing. So they know the plan. They know what they need to do. Now let's start working on all of those items that we've kind of identified as priorities, as something important for them to achieve the results that and, they want. And your planning software of choice for all of this? Money Guide Pro. 
And just curious, what led you to Money Guide Pro as opposed to eMoney Advisor or you know, new, some of the newer tools like Advisor or Right Capital? Like why why MGP? Just I think it's just initially when when we started when Jim started Money Guide Pro was. Those those companies didn't exist, I guess, back then. <laughs> so we just we've never really changed the software. Continue to be happy with the software and the iterations they've done. I mean, I guess back then you would have been on G two, then they went to G three, now we're on G four. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Correct. Right. I mean, one thing I wish that we could we could do a little bit more of is the the cash flow planning, which in Mighty Guide Pro it's not it's not that big, but for most of what we do and because of the spending plan that we develop for them, that kind of fills that gap in terms of, you know, having the cash flow module. And we use blanking on name. I think it's called my plan map for to automate the okay. action plan. Okay. Yep. You load all the action items for them, tasks, and then that automates, sends them an email and we can follow up because that that's kind of the, the later phase is to make sure that we're implementing. So, what we're so my plan map is basically a tool that, that, lets you track if the recommendations and action items are actually being followed through and implemented. Correct. Right. Cause, and then we tell them right up front is that now that we've, we've done, given you the plan, you're not off the hook. Now that the time is to implement. And so they know that we're tracking them in that term. I mean, you know, in a good way, but it's like, okay, if you don't check it off as complete, we'll be in touch with you to find out, you know, why is, what is happening? You either just didn't get to it or maybe you forgot or, you know, whatever, whatever the situation is for the client, but we need to make sure, or maybe they need help. Like maybe they need implementation help and we can make our, ourselves available. We'll make that. sure we put a, a link to that in the, in the show notes as well. So for those who are listening, this is episode 49. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 49, we'll have some links out to my plan map as well. If you want to, if you want to check it out. So Anna, you, you've got this six step process for, 100 plus clients that you're taking through this year. So how much of this process is actually you and how much of it is is the team around you? Like how many advisors and people are under the Main Street planning umbrella to be able to do all of this work for 100 plus new clients and 150 on renewal and you know however many that are maybe necessarily on ongoing renewal, but they call you up because this year's the year they need something from you. So they call you. How does this get structured? What does the team look like around you? Right. So typically, a process that we just gone through is what one an advisor does with with the help of a pair planner. So that's that's a normal pair. You work with the pair planner because they'll they'll do the the data gathering, the you know the preparation, some of these documents, and and then so the advisor typically just well obviously does all the meetings, right? The pair planners don't don't do the meetings. But then also, you know, the preparation work in the background, like reviewing the, the the documents before the meeting, right? And then in the final final presentation meeting, setting time aside to actually, you know, finalize everything and make sure that what we've worked through, because pair planners don't don't attend the meetings, so we have to we have to take really good notes, and then we have to we have debrief sessions so that you know so that what they're working on actually makes sense, so that. When an advisor comes and it's the time just to review and get ready, it's there and it's not, you know, somebody's somebody else's data or it's completely mis, you know, misrepresented in terms of what the client wanted. So, so the so the pair planners are just doing all that behind the scenes. The pair planners doing all that behind the scenes of of 
taking the taking the plan data that they've given you and formulating the spending plan and then taking the goals that they've given you and prepping it up into planning projections so that you can do the Money Guy Pro interactive session and and kind of so on down the line, preparing the plan, written recommendations and the deliverable to the client so you can simply go out and present it. Correct. Right. Great. Pretty, pretty, pretty systemized process in terms of we have workflows set up to, to help us do that so that we know where we are in each of these steps. Who is responsible for what? Do we need to collect more documents? Sometimes pair planners do attend the meetings for you know whatever reasons. Maybe it's an interesting case or maybe they have time to do that. But most of the time, it's the advisor. And that's one of the difficult parts of this is sometimes you hear a lot of stuff in the meeting and you can't quite put it in the notes, right? It's, it's, it, it registers in the back of your mind, but it's not, <laughs> it doesn't translate into the CRM notes or, you know, other notes we scan. And so sometimes you kind of lose that, but because we meet regularly, like we, we have regular meetings with our pair planners twice a week just to work on where well, there's client prep time. This is when we sit down and we go through all of the cases that are open at any time as I was actually counting what we, on my plate, I think I have 30 clients that I'm working on at the time, at the moment. So these are the, the plans that are so, open. So what's your, what do you use just to manage the workflow of keeping track of all the different clients and where they stand and what planning work you've done and haven't done? Like that's a, it's a lot of open financial plans in a particular time. Right. Well, we use our so we use Wealthbox as our CRM, and over the last year and a half that we've been using it, we built up very extensive workflows inside the program, so that so that way it's it's attached to a client record, and it took me particularly a while to get used to having that you know step by step work. I didn't need the workflow; I could do the plan without having to have the workflows. But when you work with a team, and it's not just a pair planner; it's also our admin person, Cassie, because she has to schedule the meetings, right? She has to plan so the calendar. So she has to know so like, when is the plan ready to be presented so that something kicks off for her that says contact this client so that the meeting gets scheduled and you don't have to remember to tell her to schedule every client meeting. Yes. Yes. I think I was the worst in terms of adapting to workflows, but I just, I admitted it. And so they have to work with me, but yes, <laughs> because if she's confirming the meeting for tomorrow, the work is better be ready. But sometimes I don't get to know that until I come to the you know prep sessions, but the pair planners work. So yes, it's, it's workflows have been tremendous in helping us as, as our team started to grow because we didn't have to have workflows when it was just Jim and I, right? It was really simple. Two people, we can figure it out. Not a anymore not anymore and then as we're adding more advisors that becomes like i'm not involved in that process jim is not involved in that either so when i I feel like that's a really important point to make around the whole framing of of workflows that it's 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 not about your ability to keep track of your own tasks and what you've done like when you're a solo advisor and maybe even sometimes when you're a solo with with a sole assistant it's a close enough bond that you can just say like here's where we stand with clients and i need you to do this and i need this to be done and 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 you can work through but i find the moment a third person is involved like besides just you and an assistant that the moment three people interact on a client and the odds are good that not all three people are in the room together at all times that if you aren't use some kind of structured workflows that's when things start really getting dropped and start slipping through the cracks. It can happen sometimes even with two people, but really as soon as it's three and not everybody is part of every communication, 
if there isn't some structure to how it all works, things just keep slipping through the cracks all the time. Oh, for sure. Bill, there's been a lot of pain around that. I, I know it for sure. But yes, maybe even I would even suggest to people if you could start developing workflows, because you're going to have to tell this that you're, you're going to have to train your assistant. So you might as well record it. And if you have a program or if your CRM allows for a workflow, just systematize it because it's going to be it's going to be so much easier down the road. I wish we understood that sooner. I really do. But well, you know, live and learn. Say, so, That's like, kind of so how could. it goes. <laughs> If you could go back and talk to prior you from 10 years ago to learn this lesson better, like what would you have said to convince yourself a little bit earlier to go down that road? About the workflows, yeah, I guess we would we should have we should have had a more clearly defined process because it was a it, it's still a lot of pain to train someone, and I realize that more and more as we're hiring and adding advisors and other team members, so that's like you know, record what you're doing, write it on, write it somewhere, do a screen uh, recording, but have it so that you don't have to repeat yourself. It's been a tremendous time saver. And it's, it's actually pretty difficult in terms of developing the workflows, right? Because you have to think, I mean, you have to think globally. You can't just think about, okay, these are the meetings we have. No, you don't. There are other team members that are involved there. I mean, there's a lot that's going on in terms of that. So, I mean, this is probably one of the most proud things we've done in terms of creating a system that can operate without me or Jim. We don't have, I mean, if we can teach it to others, right, or for our new advisors, they can use it. They have a team and they can come in and, and just deliver the, 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 the service. And so as you look forward from here, like, is it just more growth, more advisors? Like, what's the What's the path forward for you? I guess where are the where are the pain points for it today? Definitely more advisors as Jim transitioning into a retirement phase, which I'm not sure how long <laughs> how much longer would that be? It's been it's been four years since we you know executed his succession plan, and he's still very willing and excited about doing this work. So it's not like he has to retire on January first, but as, as as he does that, you know, the transition. I've, definitely cannot do this on my own. And so we're in the process of actually hiring right somebody right now for a team, an advisor. But and with the locations that we have, right, and where our business comes from, we've got to have advisors that are in those in those offices, particularly in the in the Maryland DC area, because Jim and I are not there. We're on the West Coast. And so we travel quite a bit for that. So definitely more advisors to help service the clients. And then I think as team grows, we'll have to see what other roles to fill. But I mean, the big step we've, we've, we've taken already this year is that we've, we've hired an operations manager, which completely changed, at least for me, how, how this whole, you know, financial planning practice evolved into a business that could operate without me and, and that I can focus on client work, right? Still do a lot of that, but then actually also growing the business and working on the business and not being so much involved in, in the weeds. So how do you, how do you break down your time between that at this point of, of, as you put it, like working, working on the business for versus working in the business? I think so. It's only it's been since April that Ryan started with us. So I think now I have a better sense. So I think 50% of my time I could, I could devote to working on the business and then the 50% of the time is, is where I spend my time with, with clients. And, and is that a balance you see sticking or do you, do you want to get back to doing more client work or are you expecting you're going to end up doing less client work? 
I think less client work. I think that's kind of where it's is going to get, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see. We've launched a new is that is that hard for you? I mean, you you've you've spent 10 plus years immersed in the client end like is it strange to say my path forward is probably spending less time with clients? No, it's not. I haven't really thought through in terms of, you know, how much time exactly. I know that I'm going to I'm going to have my clients that I've worked for, you know, for a number of years now, they're always I'm always going to do that. Whether I'm going to take new clients at some point, it's going to help make a decision whether I'm involved in that. But I'm also realizing that I alone as a financial planner can only do so many client meetings and help so many people. And my goals are much bigger than that. And so in terms of getting to those goals, I have to do something different. And so that that just means I have to put myself into other parts of the business where I can actually help more people, right? Or we as a team and as a firm can help more people. So it's, I think it's a logical progression in my mind of how, you know, even adding an operations manager, so I'm not involved so much in the weeds of that, frees up more time for me to do more business development, right? But it's not necessarily just for me as an advisor, it's for the team, right? Or for the, for the whole company. So then, so then those advisors who come in and work with us don't want to do the sales piece. That's fine. I can do that, right? Cause I actually like it. So I think I've, you know, I've grown over the years from these various roles and I've been in all of them, right? From the very beginning. So that I recognize now what my strengths are. Like, what am I really enjoying, enjoy doing? And where do I see myself going forward? And yes, I, I, love to help more people, but it's just, I only can do so yeah, much. It's, it's funny how kind of the role of what we do changes. I mean, I know I I was looking back, you know, this fall was my 15-year anniversary with, with Pinnacle. And when I joined the firm originally, like one of the, like the, the defining characteristic of why I took the job at the firm is it was an opportunity to be a director of financial planning in a growing advisory firm with no sales and business development responsibilities whatsoever. Like that was the key thing for me because I started on the sales side and I was not very good at it and you know essentially failed out of the sales side but wanted to stay in the business and so like I, I had to find a role that did not have any sales and business development skills at all at any point. No no trajectory for them. Like I had a nice stable position that wouldn't involve business development and. Now, 15 years later, I'm a partner for the firm. And one of the only things I'm still responsible for is some level of business development. And it's it's amazing how much that journey kind of takes us to places that we maybe never thought we were going to be early on. But then you get there and you look back and it's like, wow, we covered a lot of ground. Things are very different now. Funny how you kind of figure out what what works for you as you just do things and really figure out what you're good at and what you want to do more of and try to let go of the rest. Yes, it's the difficult part, but yes, you kind of have to do it as you face as you face the new new day every day. How do you structure your your day and your world from here as you're trying to I guess make this transition or keep making this this transition of less in the business and more on the business? Is there like a typical day or maybe a typical week for you at this point? As a matter of fact, there is. So about every week, I lay out my schedule. It's the same schedule unless I'm traveling or at a conference. But Mondays and Fridays are typically my work on the business 
slash client preparation work, marketing, you know, whatever I can fit in those days is what I do. And then Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays are all for client appointments. So I just kind of, you know, have the same template every week. Now, every morning for about two hours, I spend on prospecting. So that's either following up with prospects that contacted us or if we had meetings, so that's that takes you know about two hours, maybe sometimes more. So that's that's part of of that. And then sometimes even weekends is where I open up if I don't have enough time for client work because that's still you know a, a good chunk of my time. Then I can do Saturday appointments as well just to fill that out, fill that in, and give it more availability. But that's that's been has been my schedule for some time. I think what will eventually happen is that maybe less client work or as as we hiring an advisor to be in the support role that it's maybe in in you know in our process that I don't have to show up for all the meetings right maybe I do the first meeting right the initial meeting the sales meeting right when get them in into our pipeline and then they do a second and third meeting and I come for a fourth meeting that's kind of what I'm envisioning once we have a support advisor so then that frees up my time and I don't have to do the prep work maybe as much as I do now because we have a CFP who, you know, who can do a lot more of that. So that, that opens up more time for me to to work on the business activity. So probably one more day dedicated to that is what I'm and hoping And are for. you just naturally a structure person that's evolved, like that that's built this out for yourself and it just evolves as the business shifts or or was this something you had to push yourself towards to have this kind of structure in the first place? Yeah, totally not a structured person because the, the workflows were a nightmare for me. So, but I had to, I, I had to come up with this structure because it, it was just, it is still pretty crazy some days because I could go from, I could have, actually, I think last two weeks ago, I had, I had 10 appointments. That was my record number of appointments I've ever had in one day. And that was client meetings, staff meetings, and then some other, some other things that I was, I'm working on. Cause if it gets that chaotic, I've got to have structure because I can't just have, you know, all of these different types of activities spread out on my calendar. So I forced myself into the structure, you know, it wasn't something natural, but as I work more with the team and, and scheduling too, because we have to schedule for two, actually not even two time zones. It's not just East Coast, West Coast. It's kind of a cross. So I've got to have schedule that I can, my assistant can take and just go with it and say, okay, you're going to be here. You're going to travel. And these are the days that we can offer. It's, it's pretty intense. It's, it's definitely, she has a full-time job and just around schedules for Jim and I, for all of this that that we're doing. So yes, I've got to have a regimen that I follow because nothing will get done. Yeah. It's funny. I, I had a similar challenge. I mean, I was a no structure person for most of my life and just, you know, eventually it gets so busy that you, you just, you have to have the structure. You have to start creating structure for yourself or you're just spinning from one thing to the next, to the next all day long. And, and it's hard to actually get anything done when, when there's that many different things coming at you all at once. I mean, even to, today, you know, not that it's, 
not going to go away, but sometimes the day is over and I, and I feel like I haven't accomplished anything. And I look at my schedule and say, what was I working on? Right. Sometimes I have that feeling. And so having like having an understanding of the Monday is a day of our client prep work, you know, staff meetings, you know, all of that stuff, it kind of gives me that structure. So then, then Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I can focus on just the client work and that or client meetings and not have to, to think about it. Also, it, it, it made me a little bit more organized around when I get my work done because a lot of times I, and both Jim and I actually work that way. I'm kind of a last minute person or I get ready for things. I don't prep for a meeting three days in advance. It's just doesn't work like that. I'd rather have more fresh things in my mind. And so sometimes it's difficult when you work with a team, you, you know, I can't bring that to the table. They've got to do their work. So it forces me to follow the schedule, right? It forces me to allow the time to do that because I can't just come in here last minute and be ready. I can, right? I, I kind of strive on that, but it's, it drives them it ruins nuts. Your team so I have to <laughs> stick to the schedule. But through all of this, you're, you're still committed to the the core hourly and project fee model, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm curious both, you know, I know a lot of advisors that would say like, why, you know, why would you refer the investment management work out? You can, you can get paid for that. It's even, it's, it's still fees. It still fits in fee only. It's, it's, it's part of that umbrella. So, you know, why, why send it out? So someone else gets paid when you did all the work to, qualify it and set it up in the first place and and you know you, you told the client what to do and and got them queued up on the whole thing why is it that you don't want to do the implementation as well for me it's a personal kind of decision that i i don't particularly enjoy the investments and i i believe and i feel like even in the in the engagements that we have with clients it's not about that. I'm, I'm much more excited about talking to them about the, you know, the other side of the plan, the other issues, the life kind of changing decisions, right? Not with the portfolio. We'll talk about that, but it's not the, the primary factor. So I don't want to spend the time, even though if I could have, you know, one of those systems in the house, right? Betterment or, you know, one of those robo advisors, for example, to do the work. I still don't, don't see myself being involved. At this point, I think we're not going to be managing assets but that's maybe that will change as long as i don't have to do it so if there's if there's an advisor that wants to do it but then but then that kind of if we go that route right believe me this is a question that everybody asks us why why don't you do it because then it becomes about managing accounts then it becomes about that and we are planning focused right not that investments are not part of it so I think it's just kind of the core of what we've been doing all these years. And I think if we change it, then that changes our sort of business model as well. Because we can, you know, we do get clients who say we don't want our assets to be managed. And that's fine. You look in the, like, look them in the eye and say, I don't need to manage your assets. I can give you recommendations and what to do with your portfolio, but it's not a active management service. So it's a personal choice in the decision. And there are not that many people do what we do. So that also helps just to, to, stand to out, differentiate right? by the fact that you really, really only do the planning work. Correct. Correct. And and what about the insurance end of things? Like how do you how do you make sure that clients actually implement and do the recommendations? So well for insurance, we work closely with low load insurance services, right? Or sometimes there's if the client has a relationship 
with somebody locally or they've done, you know, bought insurance somewhere before, that's fine. But with low load process, you know, we request quotes and, and then when the client gets the quotes, then we discuss them and then going through that process because low load keeps you updated as, ter- as far as what where the client is at in terms of their life insurance, disability. So that piece is taken care of, right? That we can monitor for property and casualty, all of those, the implementation, for example, recommendations that they have to implement at our six months checkup session, right? We, because we go through everything that they're supposed to be working on, we check and make sure that that has been done on their part. But that's kind of at that point, as far as insurance, it's more of hand holding and making sure they actually contact a person and they've changed what they're supposed to change or get more. So, what was your path into this whole world of financial planning in the first place? I mean, how did you, how did you come to fee only hourly financial planning as a, as a business? Well, when I graduated from college, I majored in finance and didn't really have an idea what to do with that degree. And it sounded kind of interesting when I got into it. And in my, in my last, my last year college, I had, or part of the degree, I had to take an investments class. And I think that's where I learned about the CFP program. And I went to Towson University. So they just started offering some of the courses for CFP program and then became interested. It kind of gave me a, an idea that maybe I could have a profession because I thought I was going to work at the bank when I graduated from college. I mean, where else do you go? Or I couldn't even, you know, think through. And so, so that was the, the kind of the first you know, look into, all right, so there is, there is a, something I can do with all of this that I've learned and really was just one investments class. Then I also, part of the curriculum was to have an internship and I had an internship at Smith Barney. And that kind of put me into the box of not wanting to deal with investments because I didn't want to be a stockbroker. I, you know, I, I worked with them. I, there were nice people, but I just like, it wasn't me like that, that whole idea and then now I learned about the CFP program and I was like, well, all they talk about all day long is stocks. This is not financial planning. So I definitely don't want to do that. So it sort of was initially, like kind of a natural progression from, from, from where I was a pretty, very, very early right after college, I kind of made a decision that that was something that I was interested in. And I could see myself having a path as far as a career, you know, studying for the certification and then finding, you know, a path where I can grow and become an advisor. Okay. And then as you got to the point of joining the practice with Jim and, and I think you said he started in 2002, you joined in 2006, and then ultimately you bought him out and took it over a couple of years ago. Right. So can you talk to us about what that looked like? Like what is a, what's a succession plan in the context of a, an hourly financial planning firm. Because I have to admit, I, I don't know any other advisory firms offhand in the hourly space that have actually done like a, a full internal succession plan owner transition the way that you guys have. So what is what does a succession plan look like in an in a an hourly practice like yours? Right. Well it 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 kind of evolved 
naturally, I think, I think a lot of things that we've done over the years sort of work, you know, because we face certain challenges and it just happened, happened that way. But with Jim, it's always been because the clients would always ask them, say, well, well, Jim, you know, what, what will happen if you're not going to be here? And, you know, once we started working together and he's like, well, Anna will take care of you, right? That was his sort of initial response, right? When you have some, now you have two people, you can kind of say that. And, but at some point, right, I think by 2008, maybe closer to 2009, once I had my CFP certification, then we started talking about more, or he started talking more about a structured kind of a plan and saying, all right, well, would you take care of my clients, right? If something were to happen to me, right? Because now the the business has been around for a while. And so we actually even put together a buy-sell agreement and funded it with life insurance. But I, I wanted to make sure that I was not, you know, obligated to do that. I'm like, Jim, I'll do it in case something happened to you. I never believed that anything would, but you know, right. You, you're a planner. So you've kind of have to do it. And so we did it. And then, you know, the, 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 the business continued to operate as normal. And then, then I, I remember a couple of years later, actually by 2011, I moved out of the Maryland DC area to San Francisco Bay area. Right. So that kind of separated us into, all right, well, I am on the West Coast, Jim is on the East Coast. And so, you know, how, you know, how do we actually make it work in terms of operations? And then I remember going to conferences and there was, there was this, you know, hot topic about succession planning was just starting to pick up. It was everywhere. And that was actually 2013. I came, I was flying, I was, I was at a conference. And then after the conference is going to the, to the East Coast offices and Jim picked me up at the airport and I was just, frustrated with just going to a conference and just all these discussions about succession planning and how to do it and all, you know, all of that. And I, I, you know, as I saw him, I said, Jim, you've always talked about executing this, this, this transition plan that you're wanting to sell, wanting to sell a practice at some point. And he says, yes. And I said, well, I'm ready to buy it now. <laughs> and that's how, that's how I kind of, you know, asked for the sale, right? Or closed the business. So you, you really took that sales training to heart of, of asking for the business opportunity. I did. I said, you want to sell it? I'm ready to buy it. That's it. And so, yes. And, you know, in terms of buying a, an hourly practice, well, because we've had clients that were coming back to us, right? That's how you kind of, at least in my mind, that's how I valued right? the, 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 the business I was buying. Plus I was part of it and correct, correct, right. So I looked at that and, 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 and then because I've been involved for so long, right? So, so from 2006 to 2013, clients knew me. So I thought, well, if Jim disappears one day, I could just work with them. They'll be fine, right? They they know me. I've either worked on their plan or they heard of me because, you know, I know I'm part of the team. So it was more of a natural transition because of the time we spent together. And and so, yeah, within a couple of months, we've, you know, put all the formal paperwork together. And in 2014, January 2014, it was official. I actually bought 100% of the business from him. And we have a four-year agreement. It, it's it's month and a half, and we're done with that four-year agreement in terms of Jim being around. And well, you know, it's not like he's not going away next year, but more of a you know formal transition process. And and how he actually gave me opportunity to pay him overtime for the business, so that that was really helpful as well. Yeah. So and transition. So the can you share? Like, how do you how do you structure an agreement like that? Is it 
You just you 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 valued it based on the revenue. Was there a a, a multiple of the revenue? Do you do he sell finance it as a seller's note, or did you have to go borrow money? Like how do you, how does a how does a deal like this come together for you? It was a combination of all of those factors, right? The 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 revenue that we had and 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 the number that we could justify in terms of paying or I could justify and Jim was happy with paying for the business. So we came up with that number and then I gave him 20% down. It was a down payment of 20%. And then the rest was, he carried the note. I didn't have to go to the bank and get a financing from that. And then I just paid him, still paying him over time. So almost, almost done. Like, how do you get to a price? Was this, did you go get like an external third party valuation or just sort of use some industry rule of thumb, like a multiple of revenue and say, well, here's why I think it should be a little lower. And Jim says, here's why I think it should be a little higher. And you just kind of go back and forth until you got a number that everybody could live with. Exactly. We did not utilize services of external external companies. So we just kind of worked on it ourselves. And when, once it became comfortable for him and for me, we're like, okay, that's a deal. Let's, let's make this a reality. Okay. And so... As you as you look forward from here, I know you said you're you're just you're you're focused on continuing to grow the the client base and then the the staff to serve them. But for advisors who are maybe earlier back in their stages, you know, if you were talking to like you from ten years ago coming into this, you know, I, I think it's still astounding just the the number of new hourly financial planning clients that you're doing. There are a lot of advisory firms out there where a great year is like they grow by five or 10 clients in a year. And if you do that every year, year after year, you, know, you can get 50 to 100 great clients in a decade. And, and that's their reality. And you're adding 100 plus new clients a year, paying thousands of dollars in upfront planning fees. So for someone who's looking at this today or maybe you from 10 years ago like what's your advice about how you how do you market and sell hourly financial planning that just that brings in those kinds of people and that volume what's what's the advice you would give to a younger planner who's aspiring to do the the number of clients that you guys are are doing every year now Right. I mean, there's a couple of things. I think I definitely, I am going to definitely emphasize on the sales process because that's, that's a big part of, of, of this, everybody's right work uh, in terms of, you know, working with people. Right. So that's one. Number two, you really have to love this. Like, and I, and both Jim and I do, because if you don't, it just becomes, it becomes tiring. And I, I, it's actually fun because so many, because we get to do so many plans, you get to, have so many different cases. So I feel like I've gained 20 years of experience in the last 10 because I've seen so many different clients and different parts of the country, right? California is quite different than, than Maryland, than, you know, than, than New York. So, you know, figuring out for yourself whether that's something that you want to do. If you just want to work with a set number of clients, then that's fine. I actually, I think early on, I liked the idea of having to interact with a lot of different people. So that was actually okay for me to have more clients, right? Not not necessarily just working with 20 or 50 clients every year for the rest of your planning career. You know, I, I guess 
you know, how is this business model possible? You have to look at it from the business perspective, right? I think getting outside of this box that you have to, like what really changed for us and made it more streamlined is the idea of the packages, right? Is is understanding where you spend your time and how long it takes for you to deliver the service and packaging it, systematizing it. So looking at, at your business in terms of that, right? Do you have to do it all yourself or can you put systems in place? Can you hire people to help you deliver the same service? That's what I would like to, you know, propose those of, you know, those advisors who are thinking about this, starting out or, or doing already this kind of work. How can you streamline it? Because once you do that, then it just, it becomes more fun because then you can see more clients if that's your goal, right? But because the, the the system is working, right? It's like it's just there. You just have to show up and do your part, and which is and a lot of times it's just be the advisor because everything else is 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 running on its own. Yeah, I I love the way that you kind of frame it there. Like don't don't just try to sell your time, sell packages that you systematize, and because when you systematize, then you can get people to help you deliver the service. You know, I, I feel like there's a a mentality out there that because financial planning is customized to the needs of the individual client, you can't systematize it. And feels like you've very much turned that around to so, say, well, sure, you just have five or six different systematized packages for clients in different circumstances, but that you 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 have systematized the process of customized planning. Exactly. Yeah, it's, that's that's probably the biggest biggest difference in, in why we're so, you know, so successful. Now, that's why we can do so many plans a year. And I'm sure we can do more. It's just, how do we become more efficient? That's the biggest question. Every day I ask myself, what do I have to do today so that, you know, it, can, it, it could be a, a huge step forward? And not just in terms of more clients, but, you know, how can we show more advisors that this business, you know, this business model is possible and how can we service more clients? Because clients do not know. When they show up at, at, at our doors or your doors, they don't know. All they know that they have a problem, they have a pain, and they need help. Whether you're going to charge them hourly or you're going to offer them AUM service or you're going to offer them one of the packages, they just need help and they need you to solve the problem. So we figured out a way to solve their problems. So as we as we come to the end, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that we always talk about is that success means different things to different people, often different things to us in various stages of our own business. So you've had a phenomenal, successful career trajectory. And you know, from, I guess, what, 11 years after joining the Jim's firm, you're now at the the final month or so of completing a buyout, becoming the full-time owner of the business. You've grown six hundred plus thousand dollars of annual planning free revenue in a, in a world where a lot of people still criticize that the hourly model can't possibly be profitable or generate much revenue. And you see you're certainly proving that wrong. So you you've you've had this arc over the past eleven years. And so as you look forward from here at, at the personal level for you, how do you define your success going forward? Like, what does success mean to you? It's personally, it's fulfilling my potential. It's in, in fulfilling my potential means all, you know, all of that hard, hard work and, and you 
frequently use that diagram, the, the, the illusion of success with, you know, within the iceberg and then all this, this hard work. So a lot of times I feel like if I can just do all that hard work, if I can just get through it, right, then, then one day, right, I'm going to put my head above the water and actually, you know, get some air and, and actually feel that I've accomplished something. So I am, I'm still looking at, you know, my personal, in my personal life and then business, right? How, how can I do more, right? That's always the challenge. And so success to me is, is, is going through that process. Going through the pain and, and, and going through the days where it's all awesome and everything works the way you do. So I think I'm much, much more into the, into the whole doing the work kind of, you know, mindset and give me the challenges. I want, I, I want to work through them. I want to face them. And that's, yeah, that's how I would think of it. I love, I love that, that message. You know, the, you know, one of the reasons to me early on why I started the podcast is, is, you know, that, that iceberg illusion. So success is like an iceberg and most of us only see the small sliver of that's above the surface, which is where we put all the outward, you know, good looking stuff, profits and success and AUM and all those different metrics that we, that we put out there in the business. And then no one sees all the, are the hard work that happens behind the scenes. So we often get trapped in this world where I know I'm having challenges in my business. All I can see is everybody else's iceberg with only the sliver above the surface that looks great. And so it feels like my business is hard and everyone else's is easy. And I just, I love your philosophy to it that, that says, no, no, like the business is hard for everyone and the changes we have to go through are hard for everyone. But the, the success is actually going through that journey of figuring out how to conquer the next challenge and move through it and then grow the business to the next phase so that you can hit the next challenge and, and go through it again. And I don't know, to me, there's a very like, the success is in the journey, not the outcome kind of philosophy of what you just said that I, I think is really striking to me. Right. No, I can't agree more. It's just definitely want to, you know, hit those, those peaks, right. Those accomplishments. Right. But, and what I've seen, even with, you know, with some of the things I've done personally and in the business, sometimes when you hit that big goal, all of a sudden you feel like the worst you feel miserable right and it's like okay well let's get started again let's get go underwater right and do all the hard work so then you can come out and and be happy that that process alone is what i what i crave that's what i see myself doing forever and that's how i define the potential getting getting to that to that point where i don't think it ever ends i don't think you can do enough and in terms of your business and accomplishing personal goals, that it's going to be, it's always going to be that. I think just realizing that has helped me quite a bit to shift my mindset around it. Well, amen. Well, thank you for joining us here and sharing your story and the, the journey that you've been through so far. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.